our sermon text for this morning. Philippians chapter 1, 18 through 21, and also John chapter 21, verses 18 and 19. John 21, 18 and 19 says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Philippians chapter 1, starting at the end of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, rather by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. As you can see this morning, my sermon title is Dying to the Glory of God. So we're going to go on a real upbeat note this morning about dying to the glory of God. And I just want to say from the outset, I am not an authority and not claiming to be an authority on suffering and death. I am 37 years old. Check with my wife. Uh, 37 years old now. So, you know, I've, I'm, you know I've, I've had a little bit of experience, but I by no means claiming to be somebody I have had a pretty posh American life. So what we are doing this morning is trying to make an effort at seeing about what does this book say about how to live a life and die a death that is glorifying to God. And the reason is that we all have a very, uh, very strong, overwhelmingly common reality. And I stayed up late on the internet looking this statistic up, going into the depths, into the bowels of the internet to figure out and to find this statistic. But this is what I found, that if you are alive today, if you are alive today, you have a 100% chance of dying. Right? Isn't that, what a lame joke. <laughs> I can't believe I did that. If you're alive today, you're going to die. And so, the, I mean, why would we not take some time then to discuss the reality of what does it mean for the Christian and how does a Christian die well? Because we could talk about a thousand things. This is one thing we are all going to experience at some point in our life. And we want to be people who die to the glory of God. This is, worth, this is worthwhile. Uh, it's worthwhile on this side of suffering and death to take time to contemplate what our thoughts on them are now because in the moment, it is not so easy to think about what we think theologically about suffering and death. How will you react when you're confronted with suffering? when you're confronted with end-of-life suffering, whenever it may come in your life, when you're confronted and you're laid up in the hospital, how will you react? How will your theology influence the way you view suffering and death? 
And let me tell you, it will not be easy to show up in the hospital with you and try to then at this point discuss your theology about suffering and death. We need to spend some time on the front end of this. What do we think about these things? These are things we're all going to face. I want to tackle this subject out of love for you all, believe it or not. The reason why I want to talk about death is not to bum everybody out, but I want to do it out of love for you all. The time for building strong foundations is not in the middle of a flood, right? Nobody goes out in the middle of a flood and thinks, I'm going to start digging some footings to pour concrete for the foundation of my building. It's too late at this point. The wise builder in Matthew chapter 7, he's out and he builds his foundation on the solid rock so that when the storms come, his building is not blown away. His building, now the storms still come to the man's shelter, but because he has laid his foundations down, his house is not blown away. In our first text this morning, Jesus says an interesting thing about Peter's death. He says some confusing language there about, you know, when you were young, you dress yourself. When you get old, someone else is going to dress you and, and lead you where you do not want to go. And he was talking about his death, but he says there, he says he was letting Peter what kind of death he would glorify God. You read that, and it's an, it's an interesting dichotomy there of death glorifying God. Do we have, can death ever glorify God? And there's, there's difference of thought on this, because the reality is death is never our friend. Death is not in the original creation. When we did the meta-narrative, death enters at the fall of man. Death enters the world, and sin comes into the world, and through sin, death. So death is never to be viewed as like, well, this thing we now enjoy. No, it's a reality that has come into this world. It is never our friend, but that does not mean that death cannot glorify God. Jesus seems to think that Peter is going to be, die a death that's going to glorify God. We know from history that Peter, in fact, is dressed in that Peter is crucified upside down at the end of his life. We learn from church history and, and Jesus is saying, when you're going to go and be led where you do not want to go and someone else is going to dress you, he's talking about this crucifixion that Peter is going to go through. But a, but a death that is going to glorify God. In fact, the biblical idea from 1 Corinthians 10.31 says that for whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Whatever you do is a big category. And Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So, this morning, dying to the glory of God. A natural question that flows then is, what does it mean then to glorify God? What does it mean to glorify God? How do we glorify God? How do we glorify anything? And I, and I bring that up because the reality is, if you spend time thinking about it, we all know how to glorify something. We all know how to glorify something. And we spend all of our lives essentially glorifying something. You are here this morning glorifying something. You are, you'll spend the rest of your day giving glory to something. The reality is we are all, all of humanity are glorifying something with everything that we do. We are creatures of worship. Worship is a central part of glorifying something. To glorify something 
is to draw close to it, to value it, and to worship it or express that love for it. We are engaged in this activity all of the time. What season has just started here locally? Football. I got somebody even just like they're at the ring. Football. Football has started. And when you, what we are doing when we gather is in a sense, we are giving glory to the game of football. People who are really into football glorify, glorify the game of football when they understand how the game works. They draw near to it. They get the stats. They, they clear their schedule on Friday night to be able to go to the game. And when they go, what do they do? They stand up and they cheer and they enjoy the game of football. That is how you glorify something. You, you draw near to it. You desire to get to know it. You value it. You clear your schedule to be, a, you, you value it more than, so a Friday night something comes up and there's a, I don't know, a new movie. Uh, you could rent Kung Fu Panda 3, which is what we did instead of going to the football game because it was raining. <laughs> you could do that. You could value some other thing or the football game. If you're going to glorify football, you say no to other things and you value the football game and then you go and you cheer. We all know how to glorify something. This Wednesday night, we got done with Bible study. I thought it was so funny um, because we got done with Bible study and we all said, you know, see you, whatever, see you Sunday or see you next time. And it was four minutes later, we we're all parked at the dairy suite getting ice cream. <laughs> it's like, I'll see you in three minutes. But in a sense, what we're doing there is we're giving glory to the dairy suite because we're saying when we get done with Bible study, we're going to hop in our cars and we're going to drive and we've talked about what well, we know what we want, kind of ice cream we want, and we're going to, we value it because we did not go to Casey's and get a pop or go home and eat the ice cream we all have in our freezers, but we went and bought other ice cream, you know, and, and then we, we were there and now here I am talking about it. So, you know, but there's, we, we know how to glorify things, don't we? we? I mean, when you get down to it, We all know how to worship, and we are engaged in this activity all the time. Worship is complicated oftentimes when it comes with options, though. So the Dairy Suite gets a, and this is a lot of technical talk, but hang, bear with me. The Dairy Suite gets a certain kind of glory because we all drove there after Bible study. Now, if we had passed Dairy Queen and Cold Stone and, I don't know, some other ice cream place, to get to the dairy suite, well, then the dairy suite's glory becomes even greater, right? Because not only are we all going there, but we're passing and we're saying no to this, no to this, no to this, but yes to the dairy suite. And so thus, because in, in a sea of other options, this is what we have valued most, it gets extra glory. This is what it means to glorify something, to know about it, to value it in the light of other options, and then to express love for it. You consume the ice cream. You go and you tell people how great the new flavor is or whatever. Tuesdays is maple. Go. It's great. That's worship. And and, and what that is is glorifying something. We all know how to glorify something. What I want to see here in this church and what I want to see in myself is a people so enthralled with who God for us and is who God who God is for us in Christ, so enthralled with who God is for us in Christ that nothing this life has to offer would ever outweigh the joy of knowing Him. So enthralled 
with who God is for us in Christ, that nothing this life has to offer would ever outweigh the joy of knowing Him. Serious, dangerous joy in Christ. Who Christ is for us. We would sing what Psalm 63.3 says. Says that the song, hymn psalm writer is singing that your steadfast love is better than life. The psalmist says God's love is better than anything else in this life. If you were to come to me and say you can keep on living and not know God's love or you can lose this life and yet have the steadfast love of God, the psalmist says his steadfast love is better than life. I want him. I want him. This is glorifying God. That we would say like Job said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Though He slay me, yet I will trust Him. He is of greatest value. That we would say with the Apostle Paul in our second text, that for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. To die is gain. Side question, if you were going to write a story about successful Christian suffering, how does it end? If in your worldview, in your theological paradigm, whatever, and you're writing a story about Christian suffering, how does it end? Does, does, it, does it have to end, and this is the way a lot of Christian um, kind of, I don't know, positive stories you have out there on Facebook or these a miraculous event happens and praise God when they do and the suffering is wiped out. The suffering is gone and the person goes on with their life and is happy and lives a prosperous, you know, successful life. Praise God when those things happen. And I don't want to belittle the reality of what a joy it is when suffering is taken away. But is that the only way we write a Christian's suffering success story? Is that everything has to, in this life, get better? I read a book... Uh, I don't know, gosh, 15, 20 years ago, Randy Alcorn. I can't think of what it was even called. It was a spinoff of the Screw Tape Letters. I'm not sure if you guys ever read the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis, which is a write, in writing from a, a demon's perspective as he's torturing a Christian, trying again to be an unbeliever. And at the end of Randy Alcorn's book, the, the Christian ends up dying and goes home to be with Jesus. And I thought, I was disappointed in the story because I'm, I'm the idealistic, you know, 18, 20-year-old that thinks is, you know, life is about, you know, the most important thing is a successful life. And I thought, how can this writer dare take this guy's life and then sell it as a, Christ, as a positive Christian story on suffering? Does your, what does your story, if you were to write it about a, a successful Christian a suffering story, what would it look like? How should Paul's story, when Paul writes this letter, he's here in prison. How should his story go according to your theological worldview? Does Paul have to get out of jail to have successful Christian life? Does Paul have to survive and live a long life and have everything go well for him? It's not what Paul says, right? He says, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. What we see from Paul that this, we see from Paul that this life is not what he valued most but something far greater. And I want to stress, this is greater. 
Sometimes it comes across, and I, I, I want to I fight this as much as I can. It comes across when you're trying to tell Christians that, you know, this isn't about getting everything like you wanted in this life. It's like, so you're not going to get that, will you settle for Jesus? All right? That is not the way that I want this to come across. You're, this, this life is rough and is full of suffering and ends in death. But there is something far greater than you could ever get, than this life could ever give you, and it is what we have in Christ. The supreme value of knowing Christ outweighs anything we could gather in this world. Anything. And so we live like this, and when we die like this, the supreme value of Christ, we glorify God with our death. One of the things we value most in our culture is the delay of death and the removal of suffering. Is it not? When you look around, what we value most in our culture is the removal of suffering. Get as far away from suffering as you can. Have as many conveniences and as soft of a bed and pillows and all these things as you can. Avoid suffering at all costs and delay death. We're terrified of suffering. We're terrified of death. And the Christian perspective comes in and thinks, how can I glorify God in the midst of this? And one of the ways we're going to do that is treasuring Christ over the over the escape from suffering, treasuring Christ over the delay of death, that Christ is of such supreme value that whatever this world throws at me, I cannot have what is most valuable taken away from me. How can Paul say such a thing? How can he say that to die is gain? Well, if you've got your Bible out, you can go back a few chapters. There's two places I want to look where the Scriptures are telling us just this very idea. I'm not making this, this up. This is what's coming out of Scripture here. We hear the behind the scenes of Paul of how he can say to die is gain and how he's going to glorify God with his death. He says that to, there in his text as well. Uh, Philippians chapter 3 on back, a couple chapters. Paul is going on here with about all of his accolades, starting in, in verse 5. These, there's uh, these people who are claiming to be super Christians and Paul's going to brag on himself a little bit, and he says, uh, if they have confidence, I have more. He says, I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And Paul just ups and ups and ups his accolades. Says, if you, anything you can do, I can do better. And this is, he's just, he's, up and up and up. He has got it all when it comes to pharisaical religion. He's the top dog. And in verse 7, what does he say? But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Everything. Every accolade, every suffering, I counted all as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, garbage, trash. I count them as refuge in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That passage is worth reading a lot when you get home. Paul 
counts everything as loss in comparison with the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and having a righteousness not of his own, but that which comes through faith in Christ alone. He says, indeed, I count everything, this is all of his good things and his bad things, as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Every good thing is included in this as well, right? He says, I have suffered the loss of all things. Paul also gives up all of his self-righteousness. He says, all these great things I've done, they're, they're, they're nothing to me. I, I have lost them all and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of his own. What are you most proud of? What accomplishment gives you the greatest joy? Paul lists off all of his great things, and he says, in comparison to knowing Christ, my greatest achievement becomes like like just another trinket, it's refuge to be thrown in the pile, because knowing Christ is of such great value. The righteousness that comes through faith, the righteousness of God that comes through faith is of such high value that everything else fades in the light of this glory. Also, 1 Peter, just quickly, another great passage you could go to over and over again. Chapter 1, 1 Peter. Peter is writing to a group of people who are going through a lot of suffering. And this is what he says to them. He says, blessed, verse 3 of chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice. In this, in this inheritance, in this imperishable, undefiling, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you treasure. In this, rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. His words of comfort to these people is not they're going to escape suffering. It's not that they're going to escape death. It is that they have something of such high value. Everything else fades away in the light of this treasure. This is what we have in Christ. This is what we have in Christ. And a death that glorifies God, as we get back to our theme or what we're talking about, is a death that says, no matter what this world throws at me, and no matter what is taken away from me in this world, and no matter when this world is taken away from me, if I have Christ, I have everything. If I have Christ, I have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for me, which will be revealed at the last day. When we value God like that, when we value the salvation of our souls given through Christ alone like that, God 
is shown to be the glorious God that He is. When we glorify God, we see treasure and rejoice in the gospel of the grace of God seen clearly in the work of Christ. God is glorified when we live lives that say, no matter what is taken from me in this life, even life itself, it cannot take Christ from me. It cannot take away the forgiveness of my sins. It cannot take away my inheritance. Therefore, I cannot be taken. When we live like this, God is glorified and shown to be the glorious God that He is. So, why? Why be concerned that we live, a, we live a life and die a death that glorifies God? Is this just something, well, the Bible says you should do it, so I want you to do it. Glorify God in your death, therefore get to the work of glorifying God in your death. The reason why I press on you glorifying God with your de- life, suffering, and death is because when you value that which has supreme value, the glory is the object of your value and the joy is yours. When you value that which is of most value, that object is glorified and you have the joy of knowing that which has most value. If I put down two dollar bills up here, one's a hundred and one's a one dollar bill and you come up and because you know how to value rightly, you take the hundred dollar bill. The hundred dollar bill is glorified in the presence of the one dollar bill because you chose it. You valued it rightly. You glorified the hundred dollar bill. But not only that, Your joy is greater because you possess that which has the highest value. We want to glorify God with our lives, not just because it's the right thing to do, which it is, but also because when you you value that which is most valuable, the glory is it. It has its own glory. God is glorified. And we get the joy of knowing God through Christ. The gospel comes to us and tells us we are sinners tells us we are deserving of the wrath of God. We are born dead in trespasses and sins. Christ comes to earth, lives the life we all should have lived, dies the death that we deserve, is resurrected from the dead for our justification, so that through repentance from our sins, faith in Christ, we would be forgiven of our sins, reconciled to God, adopted into His family, given this inheritance through the Gospel. And the way we suffer, live, and die lives that glorify God is by seeing how valuable that really is. Valuing it for all that it is. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, ready to be revealed at the last day, which is what 1 Peter 1 tells us. When we value that which is most valuable, God Himself, God in the Gospel, He is glorified. And we get all the joy because that which is supremely valuable is ours. It's ours. Application is simple. See who Christ is for you in the Gospel. Treasure what Christ has done for you in the Gospel. And worship. Worship. Not only do we see it, not only do we value it, but we sing of it. We talk about it. We express it. I just want to read the words from our hymn we're going to sing here. Be still, my soul, for God is on your side. Bear patiently the cross. This is on page 566, I guess, if you want to follow along. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. 
Trust in your God, your Savior and your guide, who through all changes faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, your best, your heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a peaceful end. Be still, my soul, for God will undertake to guide the future surely as the past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul. The winds and waves still know the voice that calmed them in this world below. Be still, my soul. The hour is hastening on when we shall dwell with God forevermore. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot, love's purest joys restored, be still, my soul. When change and tears are past, all safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. We glorify God in our suffering, in our lives, and with our deaths. When we value Him as the treasure that He truly is. Let's pray. God, give us eyes to see your supreme value. May your glory resound from our lives. What we have in Christ is astonishing that we would be forgiven of our sins and reconciled back to you by grace, not by elbow grease, not by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, not by getting to work, but by trusting in the work that was done for us. God, what a treasure this is. Give us eyes to see it, hearts that rejoice in it and value it, and mouths that sing of it and worship you for it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.